What's up, everyone? Uh, welcome to the Good Trouble podcast, uh, featuring curated conversations for racial and economic justice here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. My name is Reginald Williams. I am the communications director at the Massachusetts Budget and Policy Center, Mass Budget, here with the esteemed director of the Embrace Ideas Festival at King Boston, Sir Gregory Valentino Ball. Thank you. Listen, I have got to get you to introduce me everywhere I go from now on. I was, I am esteemed. You use my middle name, which no one uses. And you got, listen, man, you, I'm going to get you, you're going to be my official introducer. If things don't work out at mass budget and you just, and this, and this Dogecoin goes the way I want it to go, you got a job with my organization as my introducer. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I think that this is a, a a unique way to start having the conversations that we want to have to help drive uh, the cause of racial equity and and just getting people on the right page as we move forward and, and we see how the country is growing and developing and we can be a part of going in the right direction particularly for the city of boston and the region as a whole the state as a whole so i am excited to be here with you my friend and i, I love what you said there you know with the goal of bringing local and state national partners together around racial and economic justice. What does that look like for King Boston currently? You know, it's 2021. We've had a, a rough four years. It's been a, a long 12 to 18 months with the pandemic. How are things? How are things for KB? It has been an interesting uh, few months. So, you know, up until recently, we've been slowly uh, adding more folks onto the team um, and, and getting more capacity to do, to do more good. So originally the plan with um, King Boston as an organization was really around the, the memorial for Dr. and Mrs. King. But as we got into um, the building stages of that and, and going along that path, really we, we felt there's more that could be done. And that was also some of the feedback that we got. You know, the early, early conversations around the memorial were really were like appreciative of, of the, the ability to memorialize the time the King spent in Boston but it was also about like what's going on today. So when our, our executive director, Imari Paris Jeffries came on, that was the charge that he kind of led with. What can we do beyond, um, beyond adding this beautiful piece of art to the city? And that is valuable. You know, art is not a luxury and you know, I'm always gonna be a, an advocate for the arts, particularly in my position here in, at the organization, but you know, art is not a luxury, but there's other work to be done. So when Imari came on, he started to, you know, express and build the vision of it. So the, the first thing that came along was the, um, the Center for Economic Justice, which we're looking at sites in Roxbury as a place to be. So it would, it would include um, a space for research. It would be, you know, a space for museum pieces as well, so that we can take this work and turn it into policy and conversations with, with the thought leaders around the country. So that's where that connection comes in. And then the, the next piece of that was um, the space that I'm, I work in, which is the programming side, Embrace Ideas. So it takes, you know, we have this beautiful piece of art. Then we have this institute that we're building around the work that the, the King has inspired and that they were a part of that long lineage of. And then there's the next other, the other piece of that work is the arts, the arts and humanity. Like how do we interrogate racism using the arts and humanity as the catalyst for those conversations. And that's where the space that I come in. So then we come in with the Embrace Ideas Festival, which is a, you know, a week long uh, festival that is growing 
that allows not only for us to gather get, gather together and experience the joy of the arts, but also talk about some of those um, tough conversations that are really wrapped around what's going on in our communities. So it's, it's the idea of activating in those three spaces um, is where King Boston is now. And that's, you know, a conversation that is being had here in the Boston area, but it's also connecting to other cities as well with, with us bringing and connecting with thought leaders from around the country and, and in the region, because the beautiful part about being in Boston um, is, you know, the world sends their children here to be educated. So it's, it's a, a fruitful place for education and, and we're happy to be here and be able to take advantage of that. It's a, a great way to put it, you know, as a, as a global leader in technology and healthcare and education and innovation, you know, Boston really has to be a place that is inviting and open for everyone. It can't just be open and inviting for certain types of people, certain types of transplants. Uh, and I'm excited to see how things develop with the center and with the ideas festival, um, you know, and what she said about policy really speaks true to the core of what we do at mass budget, as you know, you know, as a, 30-year-old think tank that started out as the Tax Equity Alliance for Massachusetts, you know, really fighting on the front lines of tax justice. We know that MS budget tax justice is racial justice. So if we're going to be combating some, some systemic racism and oppression, having the tools in our in our toolkit, which is really the policies that are informed by those, as Congresswoman Presley always says, you know, the people, people closest to the pain need to be closest to the power. How are we really shifting the paradigm of getting folks? Uh, people of color, uh, you know, people from marginalized communities, Black, Latinx, Indigenous communities, the LGBTQIA community, how are we getting these voices at the table and at the front of policy solutions? It's something that in our work at Mass Budget, we're excited to be venturing into new types of research methodology, you know, participatory action research and using design thinking to really come together and work hand in hand with folks where appropriate to build out the tools needed to really change policy here on the, in the Commonwealth for a better more equitable commonwealth for everyone, while also looking to, you know, help bridge the racial and economic divide here in the commonwealth. And, you know, Boston and some of the gateway cities like, um, like Lawrence and Chelsea and New Bedford and, you know, Central and Western Mass are great examples of where that inequity really lies in the state. But if we're going to close these gaps, we have to do deep dives into the community. So I'm excited to to explore a little bit more of what our emerging policy platform is looking like today. And then also uh, what types of folks and what types of things folks in the community really need to engage in this really important debate. So the interesting thing is, you know, when I listen to you explain what your organization is about, and I listen to what I say and understand about our organization, I know that someone out there is asking, those both sound like very, very worthy causes. Why the hell does that require a podcast? And I can answer that, and I'll, I'll let you answer speak to it as well. But I, I think that part of the reason why we were inspired by the idea of doing a podcast and having these conversations is because we know that along the lines of what you were saying is that in order to invite um, more people to the table, we need to be able to inform and, 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 you know, maybe in some cases inspire them into action through the information that we can give this way. And, you know, everybody doesn't read the newspaper. Everybody doesn't, you know, listen to talk radio, you know, people are, are living lives and we want to figure out, we want to try to figure out different ways to activate and use the media um, 
in a way that that could you know serve the serve the need to get the good word out you know so we it was very important as we started to have these conversations like you know how can we get people to know what it is that we're doing you know why are we doing it together and i think that's another interesting piece i'll let you talk to that of you know why these two organizations working together but i think the the idea of using different mediums and, and using the direct connection to folks was was actually really intriguing to me because there isn't a really a filter there isn't a lens um between us and the audience it's the opportunity to let them know hey this is the way we see our work this is what we're working on and here's the entryway for you to understand what it is that we're doing i think that it's it is like what you said that uh you know congresswoman presley spoke to is the whole idea of who's closest to the the pain being close to, to the solution i i think about that all the time i always say that people the people who live through the bad times in the neighborhood should be there to experience the good times so if there's a change in the neighborhood and we're getting a starbucks and all that stuff that's great i'm all for it you know I'm not particularly a fan of a mocha latte, but whatever. If that makes you happy and it keeps you in good spirits, all good. But I want the people who were there um, when there's been problems with violence, when there's been problems with with services being, you know, applied correctly into each of our communities. I want those folks who've been through there through those rough times, who've been key members of our community, that when things get nice and beautiful and sweet that they get the opportunity to enjoy that as well. So um, so for you, you, you can go, go and just tell me a little bit of why, why you thought it was important for the two of us as organizations, other than the fact that you just wanted to hang with me once a week. Always. <laughs> I will say one, that uh, as much as I love a good latte, I don't really buy mine at Starbucks anymore because they paid zero dollars in federal taxes in 2020, but ITEP, you know, the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, uh, ITEP, you know, ITEP.org, they have a really great report on multinational corporations that don't pay their fair share of federal taxes. So shout out to ITEP. But I'm excited to be here having this conversation with you today, as always, because these are the conversations that need to happen. Um, you know, in the vein of building community and building racial and economic justice, the goals of the King Center for Economic Justice and the partnerships that Mass Budget, as an organization whose new tagline, People, Partnerships, and Policy, we're really putting people and partnerships at the center for the as a central point of our policy making and our policy recommendations. And if we're going to be talking about the tax code, the state constitution, federal issues, and how a federal and state partnership is really required to drive and to help close the gaps that are multi-generational in communities of color across the Commonwealth, there's no better place than to do it with our partners in a fashion that helps really invite folks and calls them in for a conversation versus just calling them out and screaming into the void. You know, we live in an age where we're not only experiencing more information than we ever have, you know, on top of YouTube advertisements and TikTok challenges. And I'm thinking like the ALS bucket challenge, it seems like a lifetime ago, you know, like there are, there are no shortage of noteworthy causes, but if we're going to be talking about healing and really undoing 500 years of racism and oppression in our country, how we show up as individuals, as community leaders, yourself, myself, our organizations, and then also dig deep to have those conversations with folks who don't have access to the standard types of networks and connections to have those conversations. It really necessitates showing up differently in the work. So this is a space that I'm hopeful where 
a little bit down the line with the right support, we can, you know, call a number one, you're on the line, you know, we can really get, you know, folks in here having a conversation with us to be able to chat about what things are experiencing in their communities and how they can talk about these types of issues, um, these types of policies and make the recommendations needed uh, that our organizations are seeking to amplify to the audiences needed to make the change. Well, see, the other thing that I want to see when I think about the vision of, of, the, of the, the show and what I want to have happen is, I, I, you know, when we get to that point where people are saying, you know, long time listener, first time caller, um, we get to that space. Oh, uh, I'll be I'll be excited, but I also want the education piece of it, and I because I think that the thing that kind of intrigued me about mass budget is there's so many nuggets of information that kind of you have access to because you're looking at the numbers, and I I always say that where you're spending your money is where your your priority is, you know what I mean? So and and that a personal reflection, but it's also you know a reflection of us as a community, as a society, as a country, as as a state, you know, and I want us to be able to kind of illuminate those things for folks because I think there's so many times, you know, people don't find out about things until it's too late to do anything about it. You know, it, and, I, and there's an uproar, why did no one tell us? Well, you know, you know, God willing, we are a piece of closing that gap between, you know, that information gap so that people do have the opportunity to activate and be a part of it. So, in your in your work, what do you think? Hmm, let's see. You can don't get nervous. This is going to be this is going to be easy. You got it with your eyes closed, brother. Uh, in your work, what do you think is probably the most surprising piece of information that, or what piece of information about the the Massachusetts budget would people be most surprised about? I'd say the budget as the largest and most influential piece of legislation that we have in the Commonwealth, because it really, it dictates the spending that we have across all of our programs. So mm -hmm. as budget, we focus on things like, you know, early education, K to 12 education, higher ed. Uh, we look at, you know, revenue. So just like how much money the state is actually collecting as a whole, we're looking at health. We're looking at, you know, the impacts on businesses to that effect. I would definitely say one of the most surprising things out of the budget is how much of the budget actually just in and of itself is healthcare related spending. So like looking at how much mass health, for example, where it's like being on the state Medicaid program, you know, folks know Obamacare. And for those who remember Romney care was actually the predecessor and helped pave the way for the Affordable Care Act. Seeing how much of the budget is actually dedicated towards those types of spending shows how much we have to go in terms of making a healthcare system a healthcare system that's adequately accessible and affordable here in the Commonwealth of reality. And from there, I'd also say that, you know, the types of policy innovations that can help close gaps, they require large amounts of spending. These things aren't just going to fall off of trees. If we really want robust programs in the Commonwealth, if we want K to 12 schools that are really meeting the moment that have like, you know, now in the pandemic have PPE, have socially distant classrooms, if we want a transportation system that's not crumbling or falling off the rails every six seconds as we've seen. We really have to spend and we have to spend differently. And as we often say at Mass Budget, you know, budgets are moral documents. So it's literally about putting your money where your mouth is. If you don't care about making uh, the Silver Line access in, in Dudley or, you know, the new commuter rail stations that are popping up in Mattapan also support the infrastructure for those who have lived in the community to be able to access the services. 
It looks like, you know, different types of fairs. It looks like free fairs or ways in which we can have a commonwealth that is more just and sustainable without it necessarily being, uh, you know, detrimental to communities who are often more impacted by these regressive types of fairs and fines. So I'll give another example. If you were to give uh, soda tax, for example, like I, I'm going to charge you more for buying a Pepsi than I would than I would charge you for buying a polar seltzer. That type of tax is regressive because it disproportionately impacts individuals who are experienced who might live in a food desert. If your bodega only sell only has Pepsi, you buy a Pepsi because you're thirsty, and I'm also going to charge you that extra buck for it. Where's the equity when you've got like the Whole Foods and the Trader Joe's and the you know the clean stores over here in towns that aren't necessarily uh, within certain corridors of the city of Boston and within certain parts of the state. Um, well, those are just a couple of examples where the budget and how policy is really that lever that we can pull to help drive equity really come up for mass budget. And if folks are looking to dig more into the state budget on a line by line item spending amount, it's uh, our budget browser on our website is a great tool and resource and we're actually exploring some new ways to make data visualization for the movement more accessible for folks. So stay tuned. I'm thinking about well, using that example because I'm a Pepsi drinker. Um, <laughs> that hurt my heart. I was like, wait a minute, you charge me more for Pepsi? Um, I'm like, hey, 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 hey. You know, so I charge the RC Cola people more. Don't charge me more. Um, but I wonder if a part of the thought process around those charges, because I think that sometimes you, we, we talk about those taxes and, and those things. I think the original thought process around it is from a good place um, because the whole idea is if we charge more for, uh, for Pepsi, then maybe people will drink it less because it'll have more of an impact on, on, what their, on their financial situation. So, and then by extension, they'll be healthy, you know, because they'll be drinking less Pepsi. That's the, or that's the thought process. But I wonder how much of that, and this kind of goes maybe into the policy side of things, because that's the number side of things, how much of it is a discussion about, listen, about those pieces about the food that deserts and understanding that part of it? Like, do you find you have to explain the numbers or what the possible effect of, of what will happen if, if someone makes that choice or if we make a particular choice like that? Great question. You know, that example, not that it's, I'm not, to my knowledge, it's not the current state of, you know, like sugar taxes, but if, you know, I've heard, that, I've heard that in other parts of the country where people, where there are people who are were floating those ideas. Yeah, you know, and it, it and it goes towards things in this moment. You know, from another type of policy angle, you know, we'll talk about things like universal basic income, where you you know you're seeing pilot programs that's originated in Stockton, California, with former Mayor Michael Tubbs. That now we're seeing some pilots actually here in the Chelsea community here. I'm sorry. One in Cambridge too, right? Is it Cambridge? I think so. Okay, but but most people are spending this universal basic income on food. It's like can't work, can't show up, can't go to school if you aren't fed. And you think about the type of the resources that go into feeding us and making us whole and happy and healthy. And it's like what you put in your body if you're not fueling from the right perspective. The engine runs off track and not to not to get into engine engine number nine, but it's like we see the tea falling off track. We see people and communities falling off track and then wonder why when we're not making the basic 
resources available for folks and access is a huge part of that access and transparency you know and that all ties into education if you don't understand what's going into the food that you're consuming you know they tell you to buy fresh as much as possible you know to mix preservatives and the additives that you know the little hidden sugars and the sugar alcohols and all the things that go into the experience but if we're not making that type of civic education accessible and and really earlier on in folks lives the same way that you can't just expect someone to understand how to deal with their health insurance after 26 years and also you just drop them into their own plan we really need to do better by our society by making sure the folks have the training and the understanding of what they're engaging with earlier and often so that way they know how to show up and they know how to show up for themselves and for their families and that looks like being engaged in the conversation that looks like being engaged when your legislator is proposing a new bill that looks like knowing what's going on in your local races, whether that's an alderman or a selectman or a town council. It's really about knowing who's administrating the, the experience around you and making sure that your voice is heard because these folks represent you from the state house here in Massachusetts all the way up to the White House. Like these are these folks are responsible to us as voters and as members of the communities in which they represent. So we have to make sure that our voices are heard. Well, see, it's interesting because I feel like that's uh, a learning um, a learning opportunity on both sides of, of any of those subjects that we, we end up discussing or, or kind of facing because you have the folks who are saying, no, look at it this way. You have people who are on the other side who are either want things to stay the same or they want them to kind of be done in a particular way that may be harmful to folks. And it feels like a lot of times the piece of the work that you're doing is really trying to explain, like, listen, you can do this, but this will be the domino effect of that. Um, and I know that one of the big, the big topics that has been going on on the mass budget side of the world is the conversation around the millionaire tax. Could you tell, tell everybody a little bit about that and how that kind of plays out for folks? Sure. So currently, uh, as we are approaching the 2022 calendar year. So looking, you know, now it's current, currently 2021. We're in the middle of the fiscal year 2022 budget cycle. So it's currently May 10th, 2021. Uh, mm -hmm. as, the, as the state house and the legislature is looking to close its budget for next year, they do the forethought and planning for what they're going to spend for the next calendar year in the, in the year prior. Um, there's a proposal that is a surtax on millionaires for individuals who are making an income more than a million dollars per year, where they would be charged an additional 4% in a tax that would be levied on their income. And a lot of folks would say, well, if you're raising taxes, does that impact me? And it's like, typically, unless you are, <laughs> unless you've got yacht money, unless, unless it's like a black card, a lot of these policies and procedures are not targeted towards individuals who are making and who, who are struggling to make ends meet. The reason why imposing this surtax on millionaires is also called the millionaire's tax is that where millionaires are able to avoid certain taxes, it harms us all as a society because our roads and our bridges, our tunnels, the infrastructure that goes into making sure that the state can run. <laughs> you wanna talk about trains running on time? Like the commuter rail can't run if, the, if, the, if it's underwater. Like we need to make sure that the tunnels are strong. We need to make sure that the infrastructure is there that all comes, and that's also in our schools. Uh, that looks like school rehabilitation. That looks like access to healthy, you know, options in schools. All of that. 
is tied to us having the resources and the revenue in the state bank to be able to pay for these services as they get spent out through the budget. Uh, so the millionaire tax, also known as the fair share amendment, would help generate hundreds of millions of dollars annually towards these essential services and programs that we've talked about, Greg, and more people need to know about it. You know, these ballot campaigns and initiatives are important and they come around to help us really create a once in a generation opportunity to help give us the needed revenue boost. We need the money to be there. It can't just come through an amendment. It can't just be one-time spending that comes in through, uh, excuse me, one-time revenue allocation that comes from the federal government helping us out in a pinch like we're seeing with the pandemic. We need to be able to close these gaps at home here in Massachusetts and help make common, help make wealth common in the Commonwealth. You know, like everyone should have the resources that they need to thrive. And if we all pitch in a little bit, do our fair share, we'll have the chance to really close those gaps for everyone. Well then, but I, I would automatically think, because I, you know, I wonder if part of the pushback that you've been hearing around it, because I'm sure everybody's not all excited about paying more taxes. Um, I wonder if part of the pushback to that would be that we would be afraid of um, pushing folks out of the Commonwealth. Like, so for example, if you're a millionaire and you know you gotta pay this extra tax, what if somebody says, you know what the hell with this, I'm going to Texas. Is, is that of a fear on the, on the because we were thinking about the domino effect of the policy, has is, is that ever been considered or thought of? And I think it's really at this point, I don't wanna say that it's about hedging our bets, but you know, it's funny, I actually saw an interview where uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren was also talking about this millionaire migration myth, and that's exactly what it is, it's a myth. Millionaire, folks who have this much money are not just running out of the state or leaving the country because of an increase in taxes. What we need to really do is get down to the bottom line is that if they weren't dodging what they should be paying in their fair share, <laughs> they wouldn't actually need to be concerned about how these policies would impact them. And this is, this is, this is exploiting a loophole in the system that benefits certain people and these people are more predominantly from a certain class and from a certain, I'd say, echelon of folks who have been able to sustain this wealth over time. If we're really going to get to the point where we have this additional $2 billion per year, just had to double check that, $2 billion a year just for the Commonwealth alone, like where other states like New Jersey and Arizona have been able to pass graduated income taxes where if you make over $250,000 a year, over $500,000 a year, we're able to get at more targeted policies that require everyone to pay their fair share along the spectrum, we'd be able to really help close the 1%, the ultra wealthies profits where we're all struggling towards the bottom. And it's, I think it's high time because we really need these investments to help funnel and drive our communities forward. So no, the millionaire migration myth is not I mean, Massachusetts is a home to what, 17 billionaires? Just letting that sit in. So if, if these ultra 17 billionaires. Okay. So that, that's just a start. So it's like, if we could ask these, we could ask our friends who are, who, if we could ask the Yacht Club, if we could, if we could borrow a dollar here or there, but also make it sustainable. I think that if the, I think that if the wealthy wanted to work with us on these issues, I think that we could all amicably walk out. But it's also about 
walk out of the walk out of the arrangements in a position where communities can do well and their wealth is still protected. But I think that just allowing just allowing schools and allowing our public universities and colleges to struggle, you know, allowing our roads and bridges to stay in this dilapidated state and then wondering why things are so bad in the Commonwealth. Although we're a high resource state, it's it's high time that we actually address what's going on right in front of our eyes. And we're leaving a lot of money on the table by not working to make sure that we're capturing what we can here in the state. You know, it's interesting because I think about it from a business owner's perspective, right? So there's one set of a set of thought that are, are one group of people who may think, oh, well, you know, you um you charge more taxes, I'm getting out of here, or I'm getting out of town. But then there's other people, you gotta think about it, at least for me, it's like, okay, if I have to pay a couple extra dollars in taxes, but that results in a better education system, which gives me a better employee, gives me the potential to hire, have a better applicant pool when it's time to get employees, then that makes sense. You know what I mean? If, if I can spend this money and, you know, possibly get more, more, um, more opportunities for people to learn and to work this, to build themselves and work themselves out of, you know, a, a bad financial situation, then I don't have to pay as much for the cops. You know what I mean? I don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. And so I think, I don't, I think that that's the tough part. Sometimes we start having these conversations because, you know, I know with, with, with King Boston, you know, the programming and the things that we do is really around with wealth, racial equity, housing and education. And, you know, to me, it's like, if you spend a little bit of money here, you don't have to spend it there. I feel like either way, we're going to spend the money as a society, as a, as a, as a state, we're going to spend a certain level of money. It's just a matter of where we want to spend it. Do we want to spend it on jails or do we want to spend it on schools? You know? And I think that I, for me, as um, uh, a member of the, of, of uh, the constituency here, here in Massachusetts. And as a business owner, I would rather spend it on schools because there's an opportunity for me to get a benefit out of that. You know, and I think that, you know, as we have that conversation and I think that more and more people are starting to see the benefit of that. I think it's interesting. I think that, you know, pockets of Massachusetts have been always understood that. And they've always understood that, okay, you know, um, I'm fortunate, so that's where charity giving, that's why, you know, the philanthropy piece that goes on in the area happens. But I think that, you know, it seems like the philanthropy world is changing and it seems like the world around our, our policies and taxes are changing as well. I agree 100%, Greg. You know, like, so just taking it back to the start of the pandemic, imagine living in a world where out of the first, three months alone, the, the billionaires in Massachusetts saw their net worth increase by $17 billion in the, in the first three months of the pandemic. Schools are closed. People are being laid off. The unemployment, <laughs> unemployment rates have skyrocketed for the first, I think, to, to rates nearly closest to as bad as the Great Recession and the Great Depression. And we're looking at net worth increasing by 17 billion. 
And this comes at a time where 72% of voters in the Commonwealth, that's nearly three-fourths of people, high net worth and otherwise, would vote to increase this tax so that we could actually fund the things that we're talking about and get, and also I love that you brought up this conversation around investing and, you know, shifting our, our spending priorities, which it sounds a lot scarier when you say divest, but it's really just a shift in how we're funding things. No one's saying that we can't have police officers in communities who are doing community policing that are working and, and learning and living in the communities instead of just, you know, kind of being a, a watchful eye, I'll say. But like, how do we really pivot to making the spending choices that help us actually close some of these gaps? It, it seems like easy money. And, you know, like, and I also love the contextualization that you brought in of being a business owner. It's like, where we're doing, where we're making those types of revenues, you know, business structures are very different. And it all depends on how you're classified as a business owner, depending on whether you're a pastor corporation, which is an S-corp. So like where you, as an individual, you could run your business and be taxed accordingly. Those types of, those types of, um, those types of business classifications also contribute to the conditions where a traditional C-corp would be levied on certain taxes where an S-corp because shareholders hold the responsibility for the businesses. They are taxed differently. They are taxed through their personal income, if I'm remembering that correctly. And it's all about, it's all a game. And if we're gonna, and if we're gonna play chestnut checkers, we really need to make sure that we're leading and not allowing the board to be stacked against the needs of the communities and the workforce that are, you know, essential in this moment, as we've seen, you know, looking at immigrant workers, workers of color, folks who are not able to stay home, nurses, doctors, transit officials, like if we're really going to make a center for economic justice possible, if we're gonna make racial and economic justice happen in the Commonwealth, we have to be able to shift how we're spending to make sure that these folks are made whole. And that that comes every two weeks for folks, that, that comes in tips, that comes in all of the ways in which our, our, you know, our, our barbershops and our hair salons and our restaurants and our small local bookstores, like how we're shopping local, spending local and investing local, are really able to create these living, these thriving local economies across the Commonwealth and not just the, the big companies who happen to have a large workforce that typically pay out a lot to their more senior folks instead of making sure that their workers can also make those ends meet. Mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds like we got a lot of work and a lot of interesting things to be able to talk about as we uh, as we approach this whole idea of doing the, the Good Trouble podcast. The other thing that I'm looking forward to with our conversation is the ability to illuminate those members of the community um, who have a different perspective on the work as well. And one, to get their perspective on, on the issues of the day, which is the, you know, we'll be talking about, but also just hearing about their stories and their journeys of how they found themselves in the work. You know, how does a Reggie Williams find himself in mass, mass budget? You know, we want to hear that story at one point or another. And we definitely, you know, we'll eventually hear the story of how Gregory Ball ends up at King Boston. We'll hear that as well. Uh, but I'm looking forward to really having the opportunity to share this platform and, and illuminate uh, the, the great people that are out there doing incredible work on all of our behalf. I think that you know, the thing that I, I would say, and I've been saying this a lot lately, is we have to stop thinking about racial equity work as if it's a, uh, like you're doing a favor for BIPOC communities. Um, it's not, it's for all of our benefit. 
it's for everybody for us to live in a a, a, a space where racial equality is something that is is respected and, and lifted up because it creates the best op it, it creates a great space for me um as a person of color but then also it creates a great space for us all because we get rid of some of that tension we get we get the best people for the job you know how many of our problems could have been solved <laughs> if everybody had equal access to the education necessary to solve them you know what i mean uh, how many how much stress are we are we not carrying around if we're not kind of connected and rooted to those old thought processes about each other and you know the 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 lenses that we look through and, and see each other's cultures and and those assumptions that we have like it's stressful to be racist it's a lot of hard work you know it's it's a lot of hard work to be racist and to 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 hold that system together you know what i mean it's constantly you're constantly tinkering and you know it was a book and i don't have it on my desk here um but my grandmother's hands it talked about the idea of holding racialized trauma in your physically holding it in your body mm. you know when we have these conversations i just don't want it to be a situation where people feel like hey i'm doing a favor for for y'all by not being racist no you we're doing a favor for all of us we're we break this we break the the system of of racism we we open up a space where everybody can be whole and and be their full selves and be happy and and connected like we create a space for everybody to thrive. Now, you know, and if like, for example, if you're a competitive person, do you want to just beat the people that came or do you want to be the best by beating everybody that could possibly be at the table? Like the, the competitive piece of me wants to be, I don't want there to be any excuses. I don't want anybody to be able to say, oh, they couldn't get to the, no, I want to bring me the best. So then that way I know but then also the other part of it is just when I think about, you know, where we can all be, you know, like I said, racism is a hard job to kind of keep in space and, and, and to keep it in, in, uh, keep rolling. It is, it's hard. It's hard on everybody. Obviously it's hard on the people who kind of feel the brunt of it, but it's also hard on you to try to hold it together. And it's based in this fear. Like, like I was saying about from my, uh, my grandmother's hands, it's this fear-based thought process. This is, it's this thought process of, of scarcity all the time. You know, I'm not trying to, I don't ever want anybody to think that, that I am trying to downplay the challenges that face us. Like I know the idea of us getting past the deep, deep history of racism in this country is, is not going to be easy. But when I think about the possibility of what uh, a, a non-racist society feels like, you know, we get those pockets of that with, with certain friend groups and pieces like, like, why can't we all feel this good? Why can't we all bring our whole selves to the table? Why can't we all be careful? So I think that, you know, I would love for that, for our conversations to be able to be one more step towards getting that, um, getting that world uh, to be a realistic view for us all. And, and, you know, I've heard good things about my grandmother's hand, so I definitely have to pick up a copy. What you said about racialized trauma, living in our bodies, you know, thinking about 
the connections to slavery and how those things are passed down generally generationally to us. It's like if we're going to Warshawshire said it, if we're going to heal, then let it be let it be glorious, you know. Good mm-hmm. trouble is glorious, you know, being able to have these conversations and to have the platform to share um our testimonies and our trials and our triumphs in this format with partners is a is a real blessing and a testament to the work. So I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to to, to uh, do that untethering so that we can have a different conversation and to show up differently in the work over time. Untethering. See, that's, that's why we got you here. Really. You bring out the $25 words. You hit a, you know what I mean? You hit, a, you hit us with one of those so that we, so that we can end on We might have Reggie's word of the week. That, maybe that we could bring that in. Because, you know. I was going <laughs> to. I, gonna... I think that what might you're... be. What's your. What's your commitment to good trouble for the week or for the month or for the quarter? I like that. I like that a lot. Um, my commitment to good trouble is to uplift um, some new artists that are kind of pushing the envelope to bring joy to people's lives. Um, so I think that my commitment for big trouble, good trouble this week will be uh, exposing some new artists to to the world or to my circle so that people can have the opportunity to find some new joy. What is you? What are you? What good trouble are you going to get into this week? Amen to that. And I'll say for me, um, one of the the key adages that I live by is that you know charity starts at home and spreads abroad. So mm-hmm. I mean, my commitment to good trouble is making space for myself. Um, the news cycle is vicious. You know, being a black man in America, it's not easy. You know, working in communications and looking at these types of issues of racial injustice, not easy. So I'm going to make some space for myself. I'm going to deep de-stress unplug you know get my yoga get my stretch on and definitely be prepared for the rest of the budget cycle and the work ahead yeah it's a lot of work that we have to get done we're getting into the summer um i think it's going to be an interesting summer as we start to go back outside and we start to you know you know open the world back up and what that looks like i know that the thing that i've been saying is that the one thing that we've learned from the pandemic and COVID-19 is just how important um, we are to one another, how essential we are to one another. We need each other. And if we didn't know that before, we definitely know it now. So I'm looking forward to this platform being a space where people get to learn and grow. And I'm, I'm looking forward to talking trash with you on a regular basis every week and getting the good work to, to some good people. I'm looking forward to it. So listen, that is it for this week. We will see all of you wonderful folks in uh, in due time. And all we hope is that we you all get into some good trouble this week as well. So until next time, my name is Gregory Ball. Reginald Williams. And uh, may you have a good week. <laughs>